This is episode 281 with board-certified specialist in sports dietetics, 257 marathoner, and registered dietitian, Megan Featherston. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jason Fitzgerald, and I'm getting out of my comfort zone in this episode. Joining me is sports dietitian Megan Featherston, and we're having a wide-ranging conversation about blood glucose levels, why and how those are important for runners, how diabetics should think about glucose as they train, and Megan will also answer listener questions. If you're new here, this show features training conversations, coaching calls, and experts in the running space to elevate your thinking about the sport. Because if you better understand the process of improvement, when you recognize knowledge as a competitive advantage, you'll be a much better runner. But Strength Running is not just a podcast. Don't miss our growing YouTube channel at youtube.com slash strengthrunning. And you can find me on Instagram at jasonfitz1. Our home base is strengthrunning.com. Since 2010, we've been helping runners around the world, no matter how fast they are, with our award-winning blog, our free email courses, and our suite of training programs to help you accomplish your biggest running goals. You can see all of those programs at strengthrunning.com coaching. We're supported by our newest partner, Prevenex. I've never partnered with a supplement company until now, and that's because Prevenex is, in my view, the best. They use only the most bioavailable, clinically tested ingredients, the optimal form and dose of each ingredient, pharmaceutical-grade manufacturing, testing of raw ingredients and finished products, and for every purchase you make, they donate vitamins to kids in need. I've been taking their immune support and multivitamin over the last month, and I gotta say, I feel great. I have more energy and clarity, not to mention peace of mind that I'm giving my body what it needs. I've had multiple Zoom calls with the Prevenex CEO to learn more about the product and make sure that it's something I'm comfortable promoting here on the podcast, and I'm really excited about all that I've learned. Get 15% off your order with code JASON15, it's not case sensitive, at Prevenex.com. That's P-R-E-V-I-N-E-X.com with code JASON15 for 15% off your order. We're also supported by Strength Running's own Ultimate Training Bundle. Since 2010, Strength Running has helped runners around the world race faster, get stronger, and prevent more injuries with our evidence-based training programs and courses. Now, you can get all of our best courses, high-performance lifting, injury prevention for runners, body weight power, mindset mastery, nutrition for runners, and team strength running, at a massive 35% discount at strengthrunning.com bundle. Give yourself the gift of certainty this new year and get your running, strength training, nutrition, and mindset on the right track. Get it today at strengthrunning.com bundle. My guest today is registered dietitian, board certified specialist in sports dietetics, and 257 marathoner Megan Featherston. What can I say about Megan? She's at the top of her game. She's obviously an enormously talented runner, having broken three hours in the marathon after starting to run as an adult in 2009. But she's also at the top of the dietitian game, having her board-certified specialist in sports dietetics certification. She's one of the top voices on nutrition for runners that I trust the most. 
And today we're exploring a topic that is far outside of my field and one that Megan can help us all understand, blood glucose, what those levels mean for us runners, how diabetes impacts training, fasting glucose versus glucose levels during the day, what affects glucose levels, and more. Thank you, Megan, for helping us all understand this aspect of fueling and nutrition. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Megan Featherston. Hey, Megan. Thanks for joining me. Hey, Jason. Thanks for having me. All right. So we are discussing a topic today that I don't know too much about. So I'm definitely going into this conversation as a wide-eyed fawn, not knowing up from down. So I appreciate you bearing with me. Thanks for having me to chat about it. Yeah, so we're going to chat about blood glucose levels, diabetes, fasting, and, and how all that relates to running. A listener named Christine emailed me asking about these issues, and I wanted to speak with a subject matter expert like yourself so that we can really get the lowdown. So maybe we can just start super basic. What's a normal blood glucose range that we should expect? So for a normal, healthy person... When we talk about blood glucose, we talk about fasting levels and then postprandial levels, which is like around a meal. So like for a fasting level, if somebody's going to the doctor and getting routine blood work checked, they're going to check. They're going to, that's why they're going to tell you to fast before you get it done because they want that fasting blood sugar level. So that should be between like 70 and a hundred for most people um, to be in that normal range. And when it's above there, that's where we start to think like, okay, is there some prediabetes here? Is there a family history of this? Are we at risk for developing diabetes? But typically just one fasting blood sugar that's high is not going to trigger a diagnosis slapped under your chart at the doctor or anything like that. It's just going to get us to look a little further into like what's happening. So I'm usually around a couple points around 100 after a 12-hour fast. So I... I would maybe be on the high end of a fasting glucose level and potentially even pre-diabetic? So no, I don't think so. <laughs> so this is where like the nuance comes into all of it. So you know, I'm sure a lot of your athletes are getting, you know, blood work drawn, whether it's through their primary care provider or through inside tracker or something like that. And I'm seeing when people come to me, like a lot of people's blood sugar is high end of normal. So like you're saying, like 91, 99, 102, 103. And what we're finding is that for a lot of runners, we run a little high. So our blood sugar might be a little bit higher, especially if it's taken in the morning. So a a lot of people's fasting blood sugar like has kind of a time period in the morning where it actually rises a little bit. And it just has to do with hormone productions like early in the morning. Um, so part of it would depend on like when they had it taken. So it prompts like a conversation for me as a sports dietitian with someone else about that blood sugar. But it, you know, I, we got to look at be habits, behaviors, nutrition, lifestyle, like, you know, knowing that you're running, you know, a ton of miles and you're healthy human, I, you know, would, look at this in a little bit of a different lens than, than someone who's sedentary. Yeah. You can't diagnose me on the podcast here. So <laughs> I'm not allowed to diagnose that anyway. So we're good. <laughs> yeah. That was a loaded question. Um, now that's a fasted blood glucose level that is usually taken in the morning. It, it's usually a 12 hour fast if I'm not mistaken. And then you also mentioned a fast or I'm sorry, a, a glucose level around a meal. Can you talk a little bit about that too? Yeah. So when you know, we eat as humans, right? And we have carbohydrates in there. Our body's going to absorb those. And it's going to kick up our blood sugar, which is going to trigger our body to spit out insulin. Insulin is the storage hormone that's going to pull that blood or that sugar out of our blood and take it to our body to be used um, or stored. So 
that should happen in kind of a rhythmic certain way if we're healthy and we have good, you know, insulin response. So typically within like two hours after we've eaten, we should see that blood sugar come down and drop under about 140. Um, some people's will come down quicker. Some people's doesn't come down until closer to four hours. All that's considered normal. Like anytime between like an hour to four hours post meal, if we're getting down under 140, that's typically considered normal. Got it. Okay. So these this is this would be really interesting to test if you either had a continuous blood glucose monitor, I think those are called the CGM, uh, or if you just had a bunch of test strips and and you could just test yourself the old fashioned way with a pinprick. You know, my grandmother is a type one diabetic. And so she lets me prick my finger and test my blood whenever I'm hanging out with her first thing in the morning. So that's the only reason why I know my fasting glucose numbers besides a couple inside tracker tests that I've taken. Yeah. Yeah. And more people are getting their hands on this type of stuff. So um, I'm like a huge guinea pig. I always want to try things on myself. And before I was a sports dietitian, I worked in clinical and we got to try some of the continuous glucose monitors that are made for people who have type one or type two diabetes. And it was fascinating. One of them stuck in my stomach. Another one was on the back of my arm. You guys can probably all picture um, Kipchoge running with that circle on the back of his arm. That's a continuous glucose monitor, a CGM. You'll see a lot of people with them on. Like if you start looking around in races, a lot of people are wearing them on the back of their arm to just get this knowledge and this information to try to figure out like, how is my body responding to different fuel choices throughout the day? Yeah. I'd love to maybe go off topic a little bit and just talk about those CGMs. Do you need a prescription for those? Uh, what is the process for getting one? Uh, does it spit out a reading all the time right from the monitor? Does it connect to an app? Like, I'd love to learn more about this. They're pretty wild. So for a long time, obviously, they were only for people with diabetes. So recently, they've moved into the wellness space. So you still need a prescription for it. But like, if you download specific apps in the United States, some doctor near you will write you a prescription so that you'll get that CGM to try. And then yes, it hooks up to an app. And most of them, I think, spit out readings like every 15 minutes. So you can scan it, you like put your phone to it to see right now what it is, or you can just look at the trend if you haven't scanned it all day. But then there's a new one that was developed for athletes. So that's the one that you're seeing Kipchoge wear. That one is not approved in the United States yet. So people over in the UK are using it. You might've heard Super Sapiens. That's the app that goes with the sports-specific CGM. Um, I think once that makes its way into the United States, it's going to be nuts. Like This is just going to be a common term that people know is CGM. We wouldn't even have to define it. Um, but for right now, that's not something that we're using that much in the United States unless somehow I have some clients who've gotten their hands on it, but it's mostly overseas right now. Do you think it's necessary for the runner who is either not diabetic or or even not even worried about being pre-diabetic? Is this just another fun toy to play with or, or is there an actual need for it? I do not think that it's necessary for most runners. I think it's fascinating. I think it's super cool. Do I want to try it out? Absolutely. Do I have clients that I think would find benefit in it? Yes. But I don't think it's like a smartwatch that every single one of us needs if we're going to be out running. Got it. Okay. I do think we shouldn't always do only what is necessary. Sometimes we should do things that are fun. Sometimes we should do things that will teach us some things about ourselves. So I might look into this in a little while, but let's get back to blood glucose levels because um, the athlete who emailed me about this topic wants to know a little bit more about all the things that will affect your glucose levels, not just after fasting, but also throughout the day. 
Um, can you reiterate some of those things that will impact both your fasted and uh, during the day glucose levels? So the biggest thing that's going to impact our glucose levels is what and when we eat. So, you know, when we when we eat any type of carbohydrates, they're broken down, they're absorbed, they're taken into our blood, and that's going to impact our blood sugar. So um, the amount of carbs we eat at a specific time and the type of carbohydrates we eat. So we know that simple carbohydrates, the things that we typically tell people to eat before they run that are digested very quickly, absorbed very quickly, those tend to spike our blood sugar a little faster. So like white bread, white bagels, white pasta, that type of stuff will spike our blood sugar a little bit higher. Whereas if we choose like the whole wheat or whole grain variety of that, if you think about it, like it's a the whole grain matrix, like it's almost like the carbs are trapped. So it's going to take our bodies longer to like break down that fiber to get to those carbs. So we don't have as high of a spike. It's more of like a low rounded blood sugar. So those types of things like carb choices, timing amount, obviously the more we put in, the higher it's going to go. Things we're drinking, like when someone has a low blood sugar, we give them juice, we give them pop because it spikes it real quick. So, you know, something like that would spike it real quick throughout the day. So that's a big piece. Exercise will also impact blood sugar. So when we start exercising, we actually often see a little bit of a dip and then a rise in our blood sugar. Because if you think about it, we have different hormones that are like, whoa, this person's running. They need fuel. They need energy. So we start to break down our storage form of carbohydrates in our liver to maintain that blood sugar. So it's really cool to look at people's blood sugar responses in running. Even if they're running fasted, they didn't eat beforehand. They didn't eat anything during. We still see that rise um, within that run, which often um, it's like, whoa, like kind of an eye-opening thing for people to see that happen. Um, stress, right? So if we have a really stressful event during the day, if you think of it as that fight or flight response, you know, we're still kind of, you know, innate at our core. So if we are in a state of stress, our body thinks we need to flee, right? It thinks we need to run. So it's going to give us some sugar in our blood so that we have that quick, fast energy when we're going to run. But most of us aren't running when we hit a stressful event at work or life, right? We're seated. So we just see that blood sugar increase from those stress response hormones. Um, so that could be something else that would impact throughout the day that isn't you know, nutrition related. Yeah, let me drill down a little bit into each one of these because I'd love to ask some specific questions. So let's start with food. Okay, so it sounds like food only increases your blood sugar. You're never going to eat something and your blood sugar goes down. Is that a fair assessment? Immediately, yeah. But some people, when they eat those simple carbs, it jacks it up and then drops it really fast, lower than it started. So it's called like rebound hypoglycemia. But yes, immediately, anytime we eat, it's going to go up. But it could, depending on what we eat, it could actually drop pretty fast. And, and that relates to the simplicity of the carbs and how quickly they're absorbed. So the 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 simpler the carb and the more of it you have, the more opportunity there is for a bigger crash. Is that right? For some people, yeah. And that's the weird thing about blood sugar monitors, which is I think why people are probably going to be drawn to them when they're more accessible for us because everybody's blood sugar response is so different. So some people, like we're saying, might drop. Other people wouldn't. Some people might go high and stay there for a while. Some people, you know, and it all has to do with our insulin response. So like you're saying, if we spike really fast, somebody who has what's called metabolic flexibility is going to pump out insulin to get that back down. We don't want it that high, right? So some people just almost overreact to that spike and throw out too much insulin so that it drops too fast. Got it. Okay. So now let's talk about exercise. So 
exercise is interesting because it can both increase or decrease your blood sugar. Um, you know, you talked a little bit about how when you first start running, there's this little dip, but then all of a sudden your body says, Hey, we're out running. Let's release some, uh, sugar into our bloodstream, into our muscles so that we actually have the fuel we need to continue this run. Uh, does that mean your blood sugar stays elevated for the whole run? Does it matter how long or hard the run is? You know, what happens at the end of the run? Can you walk us through the whole picture there? Yeah. And those are really good questions. And yes, all of those factors matter and are going to change kind of what the outcome is. But if we're, so I guess taking a step back, our, the fuel that we rely on when we're running is intensity dependent. So the higher the intensity, the more carbs we're going to use. So that's going to play into this, right? And then the lower intensity, the more fat we're going to use. And we're always using some of both, right? Like we're never just using one or the other unless we've completely run out of carbs somehow. But even then we're figuring out how to make a couple. Um, so intensity is going to be a huge piece of what our blood sugar does. Um, and then duration as well. And then Another kind of overlay of this is we can store carbohydrates in um, our liver and in our muscles. So those are kind of the two places we store that glycogen. So what we often see is as we're going into a run, like we said, we see maybe it decreases a little bit and then it kicks up. And then depending on how high it kicks up and how high it stays there is going to be what type of intensity we're running with. So let's just say it's a high intensity workout. We're going to kick it up and it's going to stay there. And our body's going to try to keep it a little bit higher for as long as it can. Now, how long is it going to stay there is going to depend on our glycogen stores. So it's going to depend on how much carbohydrates our liver has. So our liver is the only thing that can keep our blood sugar up besides like taking a gel while we're out there. So once we exhaust what's in our liver, then, you know, that's when we start to see that blood sugar start to come down and we might see somebody have too low of a blood sugar if they're not taking enough fuel. So a lot of it depends on that intensity piece and then also how much carbohydrate we have stored in our body going into that workout. And then of course, if we've eaten before or during. So does that mean if let's say I go out for a pretty short run, low intensity run, I'm, I'm just running for like a half an hour, a run that's not really stressful for me in any way. Am I not exercising to the point where I'm going to deplete my liver glycogen stores? And so does that then mean my glycogen sort of is just elevated from this run? You're probably not going to deplete them because most of, especially for you who has been running for a long time, you're probably pretty adapted to those fuel sources. So you're probably burning quite a bit of fat out there for an easy 30 minute run. You might not even be tapping a whole lot into those carbohydrate stores, but they will decrease a little bit because we are going to be using some of that blood sugar. And the only way to increase that glycogen would be to eat. So if you ate a ton during that 30 minute you know, run, then you would, yeah, have higher glycogen stores when you get done than when you started, but you probably would just tap into them a little bit on an easy run like that. Got it. Thanks for helping me understand this. And I'm probably getting way too in the weeds here, but okay, let's continue like this <laughs> discussion of my easy 30 minute run. So I do my easy 30 minute run and my glucose levels might be slightly elevated at the end of that run. Cause it was very easy. I was mostly burning fat. If I don't eat anything for, let's say 90 minutes after that run, what's going to happen to my blood glucose levels uh, if I'm not immediately restocking them? Are, are they going to then, is this an example of where they will then plummet? That's a really good question because, and it brings up a good point, like our bodies are really good at maintaining normal 
maintaining that homeostasis. So like our bodies are really good at just keeping a normal blood sugar. So most likely a 30 minute easy run, didn't eat for 90 minutes. Most people are just going to maintain that blood sugar. Our bodies are going to figure out, right, how to just kind of keep it between that 70 and 100 where we kind of function the best until we eat again. Got it. And it's probably a situation where my blood glucose levels are are somewhat in that normal range, but maybe my liver glycogen is a little bit lower because that's what I've been pulling from. Yep. 100%. Okay. I'm finally understanding this. <laughs> now, now let's talk about stress. So you mentioned how stress can impact your blood glucose levels. Um, and, and this relates to a more specific question that our listener emailed in. You know, She was asking about the stress from a race. Could the potential stress from a race cause blood glucose to increase potentially from cortisol or some other mechanism? Absolutely. So I always tell people don't get blood work done within like a week or two post like hard race because people's blood work is crazy. Their blood sugar is too high. Their liver enzymes are too high. Their creatinine kinase is through the roof. Like if you looked at it, you'd be like, oh my God, this is something really wrong with this person. But no, they just ran a race. So yes, absolutely. Our blood sugar is going to be higher after some of those harder efforts. And they've actually done some studies where they've looked at that and looked at people's blood sugar response after hard races, hard training. And I mean, some people are concerned about it. I personally am not, but it does look like a lot of runners run a little high from a blood sugar standpoint when they're training too hard or training really hard. Um, so yeah, she's correct. Oh, got it. So this is something where the stress from a race afterward, and I'm actually thinking that it's probably more likely that a very stressful race, like a marathon, would probably cause this level of you know inner turmoil in your body where homeostasis is almost being threatened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would be the longer durations for sure. Got it. Okay. What about beforehand? What if you're really stressing out about your race leading up to a big race, whether it's a marathon or or even a, a single mile? Could that kind of pre-race anxiety have an impact on your glucose levels? It's funny you say that because I saw one of my athletes' data before a marathon, and we know what his blood sugar does when he eats beforehand. It goes up and it drops a little more than we want it to. And then it, before the race, it was like boggling. And it was because he was nervous. So like he was like super, super nervous. So he was like spiking his blood sugar for the whole time before the race started. So yeah, absolutely. Which then, you know, from my perspective, I'm like, all right, we need an extra snack. We need to take a gel before we start because we're literally like going through some of that, you know, glycogen stores in our liver that we just talked about just because we're nervous beforehand, even though we're not actually running yet. Wow. So just being nervous can use those valuable glycogen stores that every marathoner is so desperately trying to build in the one to two days before their big race. Yep. Yep. And I think that's why we all are seeing a surge in like these mental coaches for running, (laughs) like how we can all stay calmer. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you also said something interesting that you know, you've seen this trend that runners, especially when they're training really hard, just tend to have slightly higher blood glucose numbers compared to the general population. And our listener asked us if high or low glucose numbers could be a sign of overtraining. Do, do you think there's any truth to that? Or is this just a, an example of, look, when you're training really hard, and that usually means you're training very consistently, your body's just more ready for that on a day-to-day basis by having these slightly elevated glucose numbers. I think it could be a piece of it, but not necessarily like, oh, you're definitely overtraining because your blood sugar is higher right now. But I think it could be like a piece that goes along with some of the other puzzle pieces to be like, hey, let's chill a little bit here. Um, 
but they did look at both elite athletes and then like everyday athletes like myself. Um, and when they were overtraining, like they had them trained for four weeks and for like the third week, they specifically had them like way overloaded. And they did find that that week they had very different changes in their blood sugar and it was significantly higher and spiking more frequently during that overtraining week. So there's definitely data to show that that does happen and that does correlate. Um, but I think it goes back to like, this, this is a lot of information, right? Like this is a lot of information for the average Joe to try to sort through. Um, and so even being able to recognize, oh my gosh, it was so much higher this week than it has been the last three weeks. That takes a lot of focus for people that I just don't think a lot of runners are doing or going to do. Yeah, it sounds like this is something where the overall trend is much more important than the absolute numbers. So almost you have to be someone wearing one of those continuous monitors so that after a while, you sort of know what your normal baseline is during training. And then if you are seeing a lot of those little spikes and it's a couple of days before a race and you've been thinking about it a lot and you're super nervous and you're just wondering how things are going to go, you know, that's a good sign that, hey, I'm nervous. That's going to increase my stress levels, which is essentially going to eat up some of my glycogen stores. Or if you're training really hard and you just notice that your glucose numbers are all over the place, or if they become much more elevated than they usually are, uh, then that might be a cause for concern. And you can look at, well, am I training too hard? Am I, how am I feeling other than these glucose numbers? So it, it's not necessarily the absolute numbers that are super important. It's more how those numbers relate to your baseline or what has happened historically for you. Is that fair? I couldn't have said it better myself, Jason. That was perfect. <laughs> I do. People get really bent out of shape about like one number here or there, but that's the value I see if someone wants to wear one of these CGMs is watching the trend. I don't even think it's helpful to just do it for two weeks, which is when you wear one sensor. I think you need multiple sensors. Like if you're really trying to use it and see the trend that you were just talking about, it's going to take some time. Got it. Okay. Let's talk about a little bit of a different scenario. Someone who has diabetes, maybe it's type one diabetes. I don't know if type 2 diabetes, if that really matters for this conversation, but do the numbers that we have discussed, you know, maybe around 70 to 100 fasting or about 140 around a meal, for someone with diabetes, are those numbers dramatically different? They might be, especially for a runner with diabetes. A lot of times, especially for type 1 diabetes, we want people to go into exercise higher than that because we know that they're at risk to decrease in there. And obviously, a low blood sugar for somebody with type 1 diabetes is very risky and very scary. Um, so a lot of times, we'll have them target like 120 or 130 going into exercise, whereas for someone who didn't have diabetes, we obviously, they would be probably pretty significantly lower than that. Yeah. So those numbers will be quite different. Yeah. How, do, how does someone think about, you know, how to fuel for training when they are diabetic? Um, l let's just take a morning runner, runner, for example. Is this someone who just needs to be more aware of their actual glucose numbers? They need to take some fuel with them, even if it's a run that maybe is shorter and runner without diabetes wouldn't normally have to worry about it. You know, like what's the thought process for a diabetic? So like you said, it's going to be very, very different if it's a type one versus a type two. And I would say there's probably more type two diabetics that are running. Um, and with that point, it's, you know, we talk a lot about like the fast carbs, the quick carbs to eat that spike our blood sugar, you know, for somebody who has a very responsive, you know, pancreas that's pumping out the insulin that we need, that's no big deal. But for somebody who 
doesn't have that insulin production, we're going to want to be more sensitive to not pounding ourselves with quite as many simple carbohydrates. Like I've had some people I've helped carb load that had type 2 diabetes, and we're going to approach that a little more delicately and a little differently with more of those complex carbohydrates than perhaps some of those simple carbohydrates during those um, time period. And then to your point, if it's someone with type 1 diabetes, yes, we would always have gels on us, you know, really be monitoring. Most type 1 diabetics now wear a CGM. So, you know, if it's it would be something that we could hopefully catch pretty quickly and then also learn. This is how our body does respond when we exercise. This is what I do need to do. And usually it's pretty uh, repeatable for those people so that they know and they learn over time, like what exactly do I need to do before and during to really manage this. Yeah, I sometimes think of it's almost like the type 2 diabetic or the person who is borderline, maybe they're pre-diabetic, that there's more opportunity to, to not know what your glucose numbers are, to not know what to do because it might be new for you. It might be a rare scenario where you either have very low or very high blood sugar. So for for that individual who's either pre-diabetic or they're a type 2 diabetic and it might be new for them, how should they think about fueling after a very hard or long run? Should they kind of do the normal thing and just like get in a bunch of food as soon as they can? Or is there a little bit more nuance and strategy to this? So most of the time for type 2 diabetics, we're going to be a little bit more sensitive to our body's own insulin after exercise. So exercise can actually help us manage blood sugar if we have type 2 diabetes. So a lot of times that recovery window would be perfect for us to get some some complex carbohydrates to restore those glycogen stores with adequate protein. So that's the biggest thing. The things that help us like keep our blood sugar from spiking so high are protein and fat. So like the balance of that recovery meal would just be super important. I mean, I would argue it's super important for all of us, but especially for somebody who's trying to watch what their blood sugar does after exercise would be to make sure that they're nailing, you know, 20 to 40 grams of protein right afterwards with some sort of complex carbohydrate versus, you know, the more refined stuff and then add a little fat in and they should see a very different blood sugar response to eating like that than just eating bagel after. Got it. So it's more like you, you just need to eat a more well-balanced meal that has fewer simple carbs just because you're more sensitive to, you know, the the effect of those carbohydrates. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And protein digestion starts in our stomach, so it actually slows down the emptying of our stomach. So if there's adequate protein in there, it's not even going to empty fast enough for it to spike, if that makes sense, because the, the sugar's in there with it. So it just kind of slows everything down. Yeah, it's like protein and fiber, right? Those are the things that can slow down the digestion within your stomach. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. Let now let's I'd love to move on to, you know, the carb loading process that so many marathoners engage in. Um, you know, we've changed our thinking about carb loading over the last five to 10 years. We're no longer doing the depletion where we, you know, kind of go keto for a day and then, you know, ramp up our carb intake. Thank God we don't have to do that anymore. That was, Agreed. that was, <laughs> but what will blood glucose numbers look like in, say, the day before a marathon, when most marathoners are shoveling in pasta and supplementing with juice or sports drink, and they're otherwise trying to get in, you know, five, 600 grams of carbohydrate in one day, and they're surely not focusing on entirely complex carbohydrate. Right. I mean, I tell them not to focus on complex because then we have too much fiber in our system, and then that ends up 
causing issues on race day. So yeah, you're absolutely correct. And honest, I am dying to get my hands on a CGM to slap on the back of my arm for my next carb load because I'm fascinated. I want to know what it does. And I mean, obviously each of us is going to respond differently, but I'm like hounding Abbott. Like, how can I get my hands on one of these Libre scents? (laughs) Like to do it before Boston. Um, But my thought is, right, when we think about what is carb loading. So insulin is the storage hormone. So in order to store carbohydrates as glycogen in our muscles, aka carb load, we're going to need a decent amount of insulin. So when we eat simple carbs, it jacks up our blood sugar, jacks up our insulin to take it down and store it as glycogen. So my thought is there's going to just be a lot of like boinging, like yo-yoing up and down when we're carb loading. I'm expecting there would be lots of like highs and maybe even lows, honestly. And sometimes when I carb load, I always do like the simple stuff. Um, I do. I feel like, I think I, my blood sugar might actually be low right now. Like, how is that possible? You know? So, um, it's probably like if any endocrinologist looked at a carb load, you know, CGM blood monitor, I think they'd be like, what the hell are you doing? You know, like, I'm sure it probably looks wacky, but that's the goal, right? We're storing those carbs as glycogen. And in order to do that, we got to spike our blood sugar and we in order to spike that insulin to store it. So it's just kind of looking at it from like a science perspective versus like that overall wellness perspective that some people take with blood sugar. Yeah. So I guess in this scenario, we're not optimizing for health, longevity. <laughs> no, we're know. trying to run fast. <laughs> exactly. And, and that's a good a distinction. Sometimes performance, speed, running fast, performing really well in a race doesn't necessarily mean you're doing the healthiest thing for your body. And that's always a good point to make. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think there's any negative impacts to, to carb loading for races? I mean, it sounds like what we're doing in granted, it's only maybe one, two, maybe three days, but it doesn't sound super healthy. Are there any long-term effects to this or anything that you would sort of say, maybe we should rethink this? So I'm a big proponent of carb loading and trying to get people to do it when we're trying to maximize performance. So I think if we're doing it twice a year, you know, like, and honestly, if we think about like, what are our goal marathons, even if we're running more than two a year, we're probably not going for maximum performance at more than two. So it's like six days of our life over the year. So I'm not concerned about it. Like I said, if someone has type two diabetes, yes, we want to be careful. We don't want to give them the same prescription, if you will as somebody who has that normal blood sugar insulin response, um, quote unquote normal, whatever that is, we're still not sure. Um, so I, you know, I don't worry about it from that perspective. If an athlete came to me and was doing seven or eight events a year, I'd be like, okay, let's pick and choose what we need to carb load for. Like I do, I agree with you. And anybody who has done, like I did, um, Chicago and New York. So I had like two carb loads within like a month. Like, you can feel it. Like, honestly, I felt different. I was like, okay, like we got to get this back. I mean, it works. Right. So I, I think it's taking a look at what do, do we actually need that full carb load? Are we pushing our performance in a marathon distance or further to the absolute maximum? Then yes, we absolutely need to carb load. But I think if we're out there hobby jogging something, pacing a friend, and it's not that hard of an effort, like maybe we don't need the full three day, you know? Balls to the wall, carb load. Is balls to the wall a, a dietitian technical term? <laughs> Definitely technical. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, okay. In- interesting question for you. Um, you mentioned that to effectively store all the carbs that we're eating during a carb load, we need insulin because that is essentially the vehicle that then stores all that glycogen, all that glucose. Could we 
dope for races by <laughs> injecting ourselves with synthetic insulin. So I've heard stories of bodybuilders doing this. Yes. To put on mass. So not necessarily the glycogen piece, but like taking steroids, taking insulin and large amounts of food to build mass. So there, there is absolutely that happening like underground in the bodybuilding world. Um, that scares the shit out of me for runners. <laughs> but I guess, I mean, if we're hypothetically, it could happen. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm wondering if you can like dope with insulin and then essentially store like 40 miles worth of glycogen <laughs> in your body so that you would never have to eat anything during a race. Well, wait, no, we know we have a certain capacity for glycogen storage. So there's only so much we could store. So even if we were getting more insulin... Like once we hit that, like we can't get any more than that. And it's anywhere from like 500 to 700 grams in our muscles for runners. And that expands with training. So like the more well-trained we are, the longer we've been running, the bigger our glycogen stores are. Got it. Okay. So maybe this wasn't the best idea. <laughs> it was funny though. <laughs> it, it was certainly funny. <laughs> um, all right. So let's talk about uh the fasted morning run and and maybe this will be a good place to end because i feel like we've we've sort of circled this topic from a lot of different angles um i will frequently run in the morning without eating anything uh nothing super long i'm not doing a, a really hard workout or anything but i'm just the kind of runner that i don't love a huge breakfast especially before i go running what's happening to me internally with my blood glucose if i go for a fasted run is this something that you recommend like as a dietitian do you always tell runners you've got to eat something before every run even if it's like half a banana or a single gel or something like that so i'm probably one extreme of this example i've been dubbed the graham cracker queen because i tell everybody at least eat one graham cracker before you run like i'm, I'm the queen of like trying to get people to eat something before they run even if it's something really really small so kind of back to your question about the fasting when we look at it i also separate it by gender so there, i mean there's just no good research to show that women should run fasted and i 85% of my clients are women. So it makes sense that, you know, I'm very much taking the stance, like, let's not run fasted. Now, when we look at research for guys, we're, they're a little more resilient. You guys are a little more resilient with your hormonal profile. It doesn't take a hit quite as easily when we go out and expend energy and get in what I call the energy burn hole, right? Like if we dig too deep of a hole from an energy burn perspective, females can get hit by that with like menstrual uh, disturbances and decrease in hormones in like two weeks. For men, it takes like two years. So not that it's like not a bad idea for guys, but you know, it's, we, there's a little more wiggle room there for guys. Um, and you kind of also nailed another point um, with an easy run. So if we're going out for an easy run, that's very different in my eyes than if we're going out for a workout. Um, they have looked at people's blood sugars. So you're asking like, what's going on inside of me if I'm running fasted? Um, and we do see that that increase when running is increased even further if we're fasted. It's almost like our body's in a little bit of a fight or flight response like, crap, I don't have food. So it like kicks up a little bit more. So what we see when we run fasted is that our blood sugar might actually be a little bit higher than if we'd eaten before. And it'll stay higher until we run out of those stores. And then we see that we're at risk for like low blood sugar. Is that why maybe I get a slight sense of anxiety sometimes if if I'm like, oh, I'm not going to eat anything. And then, you know, 10 minutes before my run, I'm thinking, oh, I should have eaten something. It's those scenarios where I tend to, 
I don't know, my mind is a little bit racier and I do feel a little bit more anxiety. Is that because my blood sugar might be a little bit higher? It could be, or it could have, yeah, dropped a little bit lower. So one of the things, some people don't feel hunger very well with training. And one of the things when our blood sugar drops a little bit low because we haven't eaten enough and we, that's like a sign of hunger is some people feel anxious. So like sometimes that's people's first cue of, I need to eat something. So I I would relate those two together. Yeah. Now for the men who are listening to this, who might have a little bit more wiggle room when it comes to running fasted first thing in the morning, what are the opportunities to use that strategically in your training? Or, or is this more like you, just because you have some wiggle room doesn't mean you should be doing this really too frequently? So for most runners, I think the benefit of a well-fueled run and the fitness and the endurance and the recovery that you can do better afterwards is way outweighs any minimal benefit of running fasted for most runners. There is some interesting research on very high-end runners who have maximized absolutely everything for their performance, and they want to put in a couple fasted long runs a month. That's a very different scenario to me than most most people. I think most people are going to get more fitness, more benefit from fueling a little bit before a run than a little bit of fat oxidation changes, you know, from running fasted. Um, is my kind of interpretation of the of the research and kind of application of it all. Yeah, you know, that's how I was sort of thinking about it too. You know, I think about a a fasted run for a guy sort of like, you know, the 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 final cherry on top of your training, you know, a little bit of, you know, the icing on top. Whereas if if you're not fueling properly for major workouts and long runs, if you're not, you know, running a mileage level that's going to allow you to fully express your potential, if you're not doing good workouts, you know, there's so many other things that you can focus on that will help you bring your performances to a new level. It just seems like the fasted runs is, is like, oh, you're going to get an extra like 0.2% improvement. Like you are not an Olympian fighting for that extra second and Mm -hmm. potential health consequences might vastly outweigh that three seconds you might get in a marathon. Right. Absolutely. And the recovery piece of it and back-to-back weeks of training. Yeah. I a hundred percent agree with that. Yeah. The recovery side of it is really interesting to me because I look at fueling before a run and even during a run as jumpstarting the the recovery process. And, and you mentioned how if you could get into an energy hole, an energy deficit, it, it often takes much longer to get out of that. And I think fueling beforehand or during a workout you're, you're jumpstarting that, that recovery process and you're just getting more out of the workout because you're not getting in so much of an energy hole. Like, I think it's good to get in a hole when it comes to fatigue, as long as you're well-fueled, um, you know, pushing the effort with vo- volume, sometimes with really hard workouts. Uh, if you're sleeping enough and all that, like that's great, but it's really hard to come out of an energy deficit hole. Is that right? Oh, hundred percent, hundred percent. And I think so many of us, like running is the fun part of our life. It's not our life. So after a long run, we are bouncing back to take kids to basketball games, to go grocery shopping, to clean the house, to have a, you know what I mean? None of us are just running and doing nothing, right? Like we have lives. So a lot of times, like uh, we were moving this summer when I started training and I'd be like, oh, we got to go clean the old house. So I'm like eating extra before I'm fueling extra on my run so that I can feel better and be able to exist for the next six hours physically in life after my run. So it really is looking at things a little bit differently from a fuel perspective. Yeah, that's a good point. It definitely makes me think back to, 
you know, when I was training very competitively, I'd go out for like a 20 mile long run. And that run would take me all day because I would then need to take a nap afterward. I would refuel. I would do, you know, some post-run mobility and strength training. And I'd finally be ready to go at like 4 p.m. Now, that was when I was younger. I didn't have any responsibilities. And running was virtually at the top of my priority list. And I can totally see how now, as soon as your run is done, you've got other things to do. You can't just you know, lounge around for a while and really get that easy recovery in and then take a nap later. Like, my God, if I could do that, <laughs> I, I'd be making a hell of a comeback right now in my running career, Same. Megan. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I totally agree. Or I think back to, because I've gotten faster as I've gotten older. Um, and I think back to when I was younger and I'm like, if only I was doing the things now I was doing then when I had the time to lay around all day, you know, and recover. But, you know, I don't know. I think life makes us stronger. Sometimes I think the more that's thrown at us, the more we have to juggle and figure out, like we just figure it out and to get stronger for it. Yeah, for sure. It's almost like that adversity makes us a little bit wiser. And so we can be more strategic with our time. Mm -hmm. Um, Megan, have I missed anything? Are there any aspects of glucose readings for runners and and how we think about fueling and carb loading and fasting and all these related topics that you'd like to add before we sign off for today? I think you had, you know, great questions and thoughts about this whole thing. And the, really the only thing to wrap up with is if you are tracking your blood sugar, you're interested in wearing a CGM at some point, just remembering that there's no rule book for this right now. Everyone seems to have their own blood sugar response, their own blood sugar that they compete and perform the best at. So really just look at it with open eyes, kind of observe what is happening with you, notice how you feel your best and you know, kind of take it from there and enlist help if you need to, because it can be kind of complicated to figure out to understand. Um, but you know, we've got lots of options to track and monitor everything in our lives right now. So if you choose to do this, just make sure, you know, you've got open eyes and, um, some time to really invest in trying to figure out, you know, the trends of your blood sugar and where you function best. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and I'll add one more thing before we close for today, which is, you know, I'm always saying how, if you have a really fancy watch that's spitting out a ton of metrics and you don't entirely know what those metrics mean, it's good to have a coach sit down with you and just talk about what's important, what's not that important, how to interpret all that data. And I think this kind of data is just like that. You need the help of a dietitian or a doctor to really walk you through some of these numbers, what they mean, the nuance behind it, all the contexts that are so important when you're evaluating this information. And, and once you have that second set of eyes, that subject matter expert who can help you with, then you can determine what changes you might want to make in your training or in your diet to, to help with whatever issue you might be dealing with. So I think the, the expert guidance and, and actually getting good numbers in the first place, whether that's through a good blood test, like inside tracker from your doctor or, or a CGM is a really good place to start. Couldn't agree more. Thanks for having me to chat about this today, Jason. Awesome, Megan. Well, yeah, thanks so much for, for lending us your expertise for today. Uh, if folks want to learn more about you, your work, what you're up to, are you on the interwebs anywhere? The interweb. I am. I have a website and it's just featherstonenutrition.com. There's all sorts of recipes and fuel calculators. There's a carb loading calculator on there if you want to know how many grams you need. Um, and then I'm also on Instagram it's at featherstonenutrition.com. Actually, there's no .com on Instagram, is there? No, just featherstonenutrition. Yeah, there you go. There's your handle. <laughs> well, I will have links to 
Instagram.com slash <laughs> in the show notes. So we can, uh, anyone who's interested can, can find a direct link there. Megan, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening, my friends. If you found value in this episode, I would so appreciate a review in Apple Music or wherever you happen to listen to your podcasts. And if you'd like to keep listening to this podcast, support our sponsors who help me keep the lights on. Use their links and discount codes to support the Strength Running Podcast. First, go get yourself 15% off anything at Prevenex.com with code JASON15. After resisting most supplements for the better part of my life, I'm cautiously changing my tune. I'm less than a year from being a master's runner myself, and in my personal life, I'm trying to optimize for longevity. I want to be my healthiest self for as long as possible, and I'm excited to partner with Prevenex to make that happen. Prevenex is unique in that they hold themselves to standards that aren't required in the supplement industry. They use the most bioavailable, clinically effective ingredients, they do raw ingredient testing and finished product testing, and they use the proper amounts of vitamins and other ingredients in their products at levels where studies actually show you get clinical benefits. The science is on their side, and I love how they hold themselves more accountable than other supplement companies. Not only that, but they have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and they donate vitamins to kids in need for every order. But most importantly is how I feel. I genuinely feel better the more consistent I am with their multivitamin and immune support product. I've avoided strep throat that my seven-year-old had recently. I avoided whatever weird cough my five-year-old recently had too. And I just feel more energized during the day. I have more clarity and I feel more productive. And I just feel like I'm playing life with a cheat code that levels me up by about 20%. You guys know that I'm practical, I'm pragmatic, and I love to focus on what works. I believe Prevenex works. And I hope my experience with this product gives you the confidence that you can as well. Use code JASON15, no capitalization required, at Prevenex.com. That's JASON15 for 15% off your order at Prevenex.com. We're also supported by Strength Running's Ultimate Training Bundle, a collection of our six most popular training programs at a huge discount. Since 2010, we've helped runners around the world race faster, get stronger, and prevent more injuries with our evidence-based training programs. These multimedia courses offer coaching lessons, video demonstrations, audio interviews, injury treatment protocols, and even coaching by me. And the best part, once you're a member, you get any and all updates and additions to every program at no cost. Once you're in, you're family. Now, in 2023, give yourself the gift of certainty, of knowing that you're doing the right thing with your training, strength work, nutrition, and mindset. And if you're not sure, you'll have access to me as your coach. See all the details and sign up today at strengthrunning.com bundle. That's our show today, my friends. Thanks for hanging out with me for the last hour, for supporting the show through your reviews, sharing it with the runners in your life, and using our sponsor codes and deals. I truly appreciate the community that we're building together. Until next time.